Failing to plan is planning to fail. Welcome to Common Sense on the Prairie, a podcast by First National Wealth Management in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We are a regional best provider of wealth management services, including investment management and financial planning, as well as personal trust, institutional trust, and retirement plan services. This podcast is our chance to share some of our passions and help you make your money work for you. Today, we're going to go a little nerdy on you, and we're going to talk about some estate planning. And to do so, I've asked a special guest to join me, Joe Dilla. Welcome to the pod. Thanks, Adam. Happy yes. to be here. Good to have you, man. Joe acts as in-house counsel for First National Wealth Management. In that role, Joe has the opportunity to see all types of estate plans, both good and bad. And he helps our team administer those plans when we're called upon to act. So estate planning can mean different things to different people. It can be simpler for some, maybe they just have a will, or significantly more complex for others. And in our world, we see a lot of different types of estate plans. But when I think about estate planning, I tend to think about the big three. Wills, trusts, and powers of attorney. Today, we're going to walk through each of those documents so you can decide if they need to be part of your estate plan. But first, let's get that disclaimer out of the way. Any comments, insights, or strategies discussed on this podcast are intended to be general in nature and therefore may not be suitable for you in your situation, whatever that may be. Before acting on anything we discussed, please consult with your attorney, CPA, and or your financial advisor. Joe, let's start with power of attorney. This is the first of the big three. We see a lot of these at the bank. What is a power of attorney? Yeah, we do see a lot of those. A power of attorney is a document that appoints someone to act on your behalf. In the law, we call that person your agent, and they're able to make decisions for you either when you're not available to do them, you might be on vacation far away, or you might be unable to make it to the bank wherever you're going to transact business on your behalf. There are different kinds, correct? Yeah, there are a couple of different kinds. The two main kinds are healthcare powers of attorney and financial powers of attorney. Let's talk about the healthcare power of attorney first. What do they do? So the healthcare power of attorney is just like its name says. It's going to name that agent to act on your behalf and make healthcare decisions for you. So if you're not able to talk with your doctors, consult with them about treatments, those sorts of things, your agent named under your power of attorney will be able to make those decisions on your behalf. That's a really big deal. Very big deal. So it's important to pick your agent and find somebody that you really trust to make those significant decisions on your behalf. Sure. Yeah, we used to joke around with my dad that he was only going to name one or two of us to act in that role because he wasn't sure what the other ones would do. So, exactly. Yeah, I get that. There have been some really high profile cases over the healthcare wishes of incapacitated individuals. I'm thinking of like the Terry Schiavo case, which was litigated for what was it, like 15 years. It was, a, yeah, it was a very long time. Went to the Supreme Court. Does having healthcare power of attorney avoid those kind of fights? It doesn't necessarily avoid those fights, but it's a huge first step in the right direction. Having a document indicating what your wishes are and who you want to act on your behalf should hopefully mitigate or remove most of those fights. But nothing that we really talk about or are able to do is foolproof, unfortunately. Yeah, I wish. What about a financial power of attorney? What do those do? Yeah, so financial power of attorney, again, just like what its name says, it allows your agent to take actions based on your financial life and your assets. So they're going to be able to typically access bank accounts, write checks on your behalf, deposit funds, deal with retirement accounts, 
even manage real estate. So if you've got ag real estate or commercial real estate, work to find new tenants, collect rents, all of those sorts of things typically. Okay, sure. So Joe, you and I are both still relatively young and healthy. Should we have a power of attorney? Yeah, I think we should. After we're done taping this pod today, we're both going to get in our cars and head home. And if something were to happen to us, we would want somebody, I think, to make those decisions on our behalf. So having a power of attorney in place is a good thing for nearly every adult. Okay. The second of the big three is a will. Joe, what's a will? So a will is a document that provides for the disposition or distribution of your assets following your death. Does everyone need one? I think a vast majority of people need a will. Maybe not when you're in college or stuff like that. But after you get your first job, I think it's probably something that you need to start thinking about. And it's more important for certain young people than it is others. Sure. So even if you're young and you're thinking, I don't have a pot to piss in, what, what do I need a will for? Maybe they need to rethink that. Yeah. And especially young parents. One of the things that a lot of people who are maybe just starting out in their career but have young children, one of the main things that a will provides you an opportunity to do is name a guardian for your children in the event that something would happen to you and your spouse. Sure. So that's a non-financial reason to get a will in place, but it's probably the most important reason for that segment of the population. Yeah. And that's what we're often coaching our clients about when there are young parents that they do need to name that guardian because as we've seen, people fight over a lot of things. And that's certainly a big thing to fight over is who's going to take care of kids if the ultimate tragedy happens and mom and dad were both not able to be there. Exactly. Joe, I don't know if you remember this or not, but you used to be able to buy a will template like at Office Max. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing it like on the, the end caps of aisles, you could just buy a will or you could buy a trust. I assume we've advanced a little bit and you can just do that online these days. Well, there are definitely a lot of forms for all kinds of estate planning documents that are available online. It's not something that I recommend or think is useful for the vast majority of people. We always point our wealth management clients to getting assistance from accredited professionals. So yes, you're going to spend some money to get the will or trust or even power of attorney put in place. But when you've got an opportunity to sit down with the lawyer to do that, and they'll go through all of the questions that you need to be thinking about, the decisions that need to be made, all of those sorts of things, and then have the backstop of their professional training behind that to yeah. ensure that's going to be effective and properly executed in South Dakota or any other state that you're in is significant. And when you just go online, Google any of those documents and come up with a will or a template for a power of attorney, you don't necessarily have that. And you may have a lot of unintended consequences as a result. Sure. That makes sense. And everybody's a little different, right? So everybody's got different circumstances and sitting down with an attorney to do a customized plan, I assume, accounts for all those differences. And you may not get that when you do it online or through a form. Exactly. Yep. What happens if you die without a will? If you die without a will, there is a statutory setup for how your assets are distributed upon your death. So each state has a set of laws written that says if a person dies without a will, your assets go to this person and then this person. There's kind of a hierarchy and it typically starts with a surviving spouse. Sure. If you don't have kids, it would go to your parents. If you don't have parents, it'd be your brothers and sisters and then more distant relatives after that. Okay. Does it ever go back to the state? It does. So if for whatever reason you were to pass away and you don't have any of those relatives, 
essentially the last line in your family tree, then your assets would go to the state of South Dakota okay. unless you name someone else and actually create a will to make distribution of those to a charity or a close friend, whatever it may be in your particular circumstance. I mean, the state wouldn't hate it if they got some extra money. So, No, the state wouldn't hate it. And that's what's in the legal field is called the taker of last resort. Mm. So if you do absolutely nothing and you're the last one in your family tree, that's where it'll end up. But you've got the ability to change that and get it to someplace else if you so desire. Sure. So in wills, sometimes we see kids treated differently or even disinherited under a will. How bad can those cases get? They can get pretty bad. And each person has the ability to disinherit their child or children. And it can be complete disinheritance, like you said, or partial favor one child over another. All of those things are things that you're able to do when drafting your will. But if there isn't some sort of conversation about why that may be happening, that's typically where we've seen the biggest fights after the fact. Surprise. Yeah. Yep. So even though you've put the will down on a piece of paper, it still requires parenting and communication and maybe some expectation setting or else you're kind of inviting a fight after the fact. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but one of my first jobs in this field was to settle estates. And some of the worst estates I had were they were multi-million dollar estates and some of their kids, the parents gave them $1. And there's nothing worse than having to write a check to a kid for $1 out of a multi-million dollar estate. They were just some nasty, nasty family things. And another thing I would tell people too, though, is equal doesn't necessarily mean fair. Now, I use mm -hmm. this example quite a bit. I've got two daughters. And so if Diane and I were to have one of our children go off and go to college and then never really come home, never really be part of our lives and just go live their own life, which is fine, whatever. But then the other child stayed with us. And as we got older, they cared for us. They took us to doctor's appointments, to haircuts. They helped us with our healthcare stuff. And if Diane and I wanted to be fair, we might think, well, 50-50, we have two children, each should get half. But the child that stayed maybe necessarily wouldn't think that was fair. I mean, it's equal, yes, but that doesn't mean that it's fair. And so one thing I like to tell parents about is that, you know, you have to think about the facts and circumstances about your kids and you can treat them differently if you want to. But like you mentioned, the biggest thing is to manage expectations. And I know those are hard conversations to have, but they sure make our lives easier when those conversations are had while mom and dad still can. Yeah, exactly. If there's some sort of expectation or conversation about why things may not be equal, yeah. as you say, mm -hmm. and why you and your spouse still believe that that unequal distribution is fair, that can go a long way in yeah. preventing those bitter fights and lingering animosity amongst siblings and stuff like that after both parents have passed away. Yeah, sure can. Does proper estate planning eliminate family fights? No, it does not. <laughs> if only it were that easy, right? Right. It definitely helps because it, again, puts what your plans are and what your intentions are down on a piece of paper so that everyone sees exactly what that is. But any lingering differences of opinion slights that siblings or in-laws or anybody else feel likely are going to bubble up after the fact. So it's not a substitute. It's at best a supplement, probably. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. And, you know, I'd say in my experience, if a family wants to fight, they're going to find something to fight over, whether it's the couch in the basement or a million dollars, they're going to scratch that itch. And it's sad when it happens, but it just does. And I don't know why some of my craziest estates were in the Southwest part of the country, but I had a family once and there was four kids and, and I say kids, but they were in their forties. They were so mad at each other, Joe. The estate plan was pretty clear what everybody got, but what they had to fight over was all the stuff. Mm-hmm. That, that wasn't clear in the document. Like what happens to all of mom and dad's stuff? And so mom passed away first and then dad passed away. And so they couldn't agree on anything. So we had to kind of like draw straws of who got to pick first from the house and things like that. And as so I had to fly down there and, and referee this thing. And as we went through the day, they just kept getting madder and madder. And so by the end of the day, they were so mad that they, when it was their turn, they were claiming like the other person's family wedding photos. It just <laughs> became really toxic. And it, it was sad, but it, you know, what it taught me was even good estate plans still leave room for, for fights, but a good estate plan can really limit the damage to, you know, they were fighting over stuff. Right. They weren't fighting for years over the bulk of the assets. They were just fighting over the stuff. And so well, it was sad, but mom and dad did get some good planning, but they still couldn't eliminate all the fights. Yep, exactly. Asking for a friend. Can my wife disinherit me? Is your friend's name Adam by chance? <laughs> yeah. And Adam's wife probably has a, a good reason to disinherit him. <laughs> yeah, probably so. <laughs> so a spouse can attempt to disinherit another spouse. But again, under South Dakota law, and this is the law in pretty much every other state as well, you cannot completely disinherit a spouse mm-hmm. if you've been married prior to death. There is kind of a sliding scale based upon how long the marriage lasted that indicates if one spouse survives what they're entitled to if they were disinherited okay. under a will. Okay. That's obviously excluding pre and postnuptial agreements and that kind of stuff. Those things can alter those, but generally speaking, a spouse cannot be completely disinherited. Good. My friend will be relieved to hear that. I'm sure he will. <laughs> the last of the big three estate planning documents I want to go over is a trust. What's a trust? So a trust is a special legal relationship that creates duties and obligations for the management, preservation of assets for beneficiaries. So the most common trust that we see is a revocable living trust or just living trust. And typically what we see is the grantor, the person who creates the trust, also names themselves as trustee, and they are the initial beneficiary of that trust. So they're essentially moving all of their assets from their own name into the into the name of the trust okay. to avoid what's called probate. And probate is the process where if you just have a will, your assets are distributed after your death. And that's done through court? That is done through court. And the involvement of the court depends on a whole lot of facts and circumstances. But a revocable trust allows you to avoid that process of if the trust is properly funded and manage the assets, use the assets for your own benefit, and also appoint someone in the event that you either no longer want to be trustee and manage the assets Mm -hmm. or are no longer able to do so, provide what's called a successor trustee to step in and continue to do those things for you and for your benefit while you're still alive. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And that's a role that we play a lot of times at the bank too. 
exactly. successor trustee when someone no longer wishes or can no longer manage their own assets that we step in at that point. I think most people, when they hear the word trusts, assume that they're just for really rich people as a way to hide assets somehow from the government. Is that unfair? Yeah, I think that's unfair. There are definitely the outlier situations where trusts are used for those purposes. Yeah. But the vast, vast majority of people are utilizing trusts, like we just talked about, to avoid probate and to make an easy transition of assets either during their later years or after their death. Okay. So we talked a little bit before about what a will is. Why would someone use a trust to dispose of their assets versus a will? Well, again, the first reason that most people do is the probate avoidance part, not wanting to have to file anything with a court and make that a public filing that's open to inspection by anybody in the community. Mm. But another big factor is just the flexibility. Okay. So in a will situation, if you've got a will and your, your will goes into probate, typically within a year to 18 months after your death, all of your assets are going to be distributed. So if you've got either a child who goes through money quickly, you mm-hmm. don't necessarily trust with a large sum of money mm-hmm. immediately upon your death, or if you've got younger children, children who may still be college age or just out of college, those sorts of things, a trust allows the trustee to distribute assets slowly over time. Okay, And we see that quite a bit as well. And then there's obviously the more high net worth, there's a whole bunch of additional reasons that you may want to implement trust planning as well. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. So under a will, you know, if I've got, again, my example, I've got two kids and my wife and I were to pass away at a relatively young age and say our kids were 22 to 25 years old, under a will, they would get all of our assets immediately once the estate was settled and they would just deal with that. Correct. Now, if we don't have much money, that's maybe going to limit some of the damage they can do. Um, But if we were to have more assets, a trust could help us spread out those distributions. So I think a lot of times we see people name their kids and to get assets at certain age ranges. Maybe they get a little bit at age 25 and half of the trust at age 30 and half of the trust at age 35. And I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but they they do that to, as kids get older, they tend to mature a little bit and create better money habits in theory. And they will maybe hold on to that money a little bit longer than maybe they would when they're 22 and they get a lump sum of money. Exactly. Yeah. That's the theory. And yeah, typically right. it works out that way. But those are the big reasons that we see people utilizing trust. Sure. Some people never learn how to manage money, though, either. That's also true. Yeah. Can't protect against everything. You know, lots of people set up trusts in South Dakota. I know that's kind of gotten more publicity uh, over the last several years. And what makes our state so special? Well, a lot of the things that make our state special have to do with privacy and creditor protection. Mm -hmm. Those are probably the two big things. And revising old trusts. So a lot of extremely wealthy people set up trusts or grandparents set up trusts in the 50s, 60s, 70s that are now outdated. Mm. South Dakota law has provisions that allow trustees to update those documents uh, for the change in tax laws, change in just the overall financial environment. Mm. A number of beneficiaries has multiplied significantly since then, all of those sorts of things. So we've got a lot of flexibility 
but also a lot of privacy protections in South Dakota that some other states don't have. Sure. I remember seeing cases before where grandma and grandpa set up a trust and each grandkid was to get $700 a year. Well, when they set that up, that was a decent amount of money. But in 2020, $700 isn't necessarily as much money and the trust is really large. So that might be a way where you can revise some things to to make it make a little more sense. Exactly. Yep. Another thing that we see quite a bit is the privacy angle. We see a lot of high net worth folks really wrestle with what their money could do to their kids and grandkids. South Dakota affords you additional layers of privacy. So maybe the kids and grandkids don't get access to information right away, or they get limited amounts of information or no information in some instances. And that brings an additional level of comfort to say mom and dad or grandma and grandpa. They want to do estate planning, but they're worried about their kids knowing what amount of money they're going to inherit. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. And those concerns are definitely big ones for a lot of people. Yeah. And we don't know exactly how that really looks yet because a lot of these trust laws have been adopted and changed to make South Dakota advantageous versus other states in the relatively recent history. So it's going to be something that I think we'll continue to see and we'll know a lot more probably in 10 or 15 years about how well that works out. We might have a few scars by then. Yep, exactly. (laughs) Joe, this was great. Thanks so much for joining me on the pod. Yeah, thanks for having me. We hope this information was helpful to all of our listeners. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell your friends. We'll talk with you again soon. 